followed by a stylistic cinematography shot. This week, Primal. Stay tuned. Good day and welcome to Writers Get Animated, a podcast about storytelling, animation, and silence. I'm Chris Leva. I'm only slightly worried about your stroke there, Mackenzie Worrell. <laughs> and today we're talking about Primal, the new, what do we call it, uh, miniseries? Yeah, miniseries but aired in movie theaters in LA, so it's eligible for an Oscar. Hmm, cunning. <laughs> cunning like a, adult swim. Like a dinosaur cunning. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Primal, the new Gendy Tartakovsky joint, if you will. Oh, I was I was waiting for like joint, like production, like no joint, like no, joint, Spike like Lee joint. Spike Lee, yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting to me because Gendy, I think, is. Other than Hayao Miyazaki, I can't name another, like, animator that's achieved, like, auteur status among filmmakers. Hmm. What do you think that is? Cinematography. I don't know. Uh, there's, there's definitely, like, a cult of people can set up really pretty shots and tell story and emotion with, like, stills or diorama-looking things. Um, I think Gendy is most known for like the really zoomed out shots where you see like a shadow of like a caveman running along a tree trunk in the background. It's just a still shot. You just see like something running in the background and that tells a story. And that's Gendy and people like cinematography and don't get me wrong. It's pretty and great, but there's definitely a cult of people who like cinematography and <laughs> good for an animator for achieving uh a rank in that cult. So I think part of our conversation today, as we discuss Primal, is also discussing, because we're a podcast about animation and storytelling, is just storytelling without dialogue and what that means when you are coming up with your story and what that means you have and what that means you don't have mm -hmm. other than just dialogue. <laughs> we don't have dialogue. So what, what are the other things that you don't have and what has to ramp up because of that? I mean, there's having no dialogue is it's something that, I mean, theater does. I mean, you have mime, mm -hmm. of course, I mean, yeah, there's, there's, that's a thing that exists in our world, um, but there's not always story told through mime, but you have mime plays or um, I think one of the big ones that I know of are some of the short plays by Samuel Beckett, like Act Without Words 1 and Act Without Words 2, yeah. where it's just stage directions all on the page for about three or four pages and you get 15 minutes out of three or four pages because it's what a character is doing. And I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum thinking of like Scorsese's short film of just an old dude shaving and like art house black and white cinema where it's not even really a story. The focus is on the look of the thing as someone performs an action. 
because how you set up a shot and the music you set to it and what else you do without it having a story can still generate an emotional response in the viewer. Hmm. So I guess there is that change. So having a, if you're telling your story without words, without dialogue in a theatrical sense, then it becomes about a character's reaction to the world around them. So it becomes very much tied to a character reacting to the world or other characters. Um, and film, you get to add a little bit more. Could you say a little bit more about that in terms of what you end up with if you don't have dialogue, what's left? Uh, well, so the examples I'm thinking of are uh, things that I think are absurd, but also kind of love, like those art house movies that have no story. And Primal definitely has a story. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And whether we're pre-programmed as luminous beings to have emotional responses to some things, or if we're just trained by cinema at this point, <laughs> that if you put That's dramatic, yeah. like slow, dramatic classical music on top of like slow, methodical movement, you're like, I just want to cry. It's so emotional. And it's, I'm un, like taking the peel off of a Lunchables box slowly. You can just imagine that black and white film of me just like slowly making a Lunchable sandwich and eating it like. I mean, that is sad. Why would you be eating a Lunchables? Exactly. You feel sad. There's nothing sad about it. As a filmmaker. Are you sure though? It's Okay, well, fine. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes. I suppose it determines on how you feel about Lunchables in general. But, but see right there, just from being shown something and hearing something, you've been engineered to interpret your own story and emotional response. Well, I think we as humans, I mean, <laughs> there is a primal understanding <laughs> in us that, that looks for that connection, that, that understanding of we look for story. Like we, we seek it out. There's something where we try to find a meaning, whether it's in classical music where we hear something which doesn't have words, it doesn't have lyrics, but it has emotion. And we try to adhere a story to it. I mean, that's what Fantasia is all about. Like there's something going on here. There's a, there's a story happening. Mm -hmm. um, I think it comes from structure and expectation. And we watch things wanting, wanting to, to understand what is happening and whether we have to manufacture that ourselves or whether we're being, and I mean this in a very good way, manipulated by somebody who created a thing, there, there is, there's meaning that is being made. It's a very emotional speech. I supported <sighs> it. I feel like it was very, it was very deep. It was good. Um, it got to the, the meat and small potatoes. In this case, big potatoes, big existential theatrical potatoes. Yeah, I mean, it, it must be all my interactions doing dramaturgy for dance. <laughs> you know, how do you, yep. how do you make story and meaning, but not necessarily influences someone else's interpretation? Like, how do you make it clear and emotional and say something that can still allow for someone else's meaning making and interpretation. 
there there it's it's hard it's hard it is just in general it's hard <laughs> making art um, is hard guys <laughs> end of podcast we're done we've we're told done. we've made our point i think this is our final episode we're just done <laughs> art is hard enjoy it i mean it is episode 151 which means we're now at a total number of podcast episodes as the number of pokemon in the first pokemon game I, this went from like serious insightful <laughs> stuff to me reciting nerd things really quickly. I <laughs> that's, that's I love amazing. my bathos. Um, <laughs> primal. So yes, it is. It's eliciting emotional responses, and it's using these cinematographic human primal needs for story to like generate an emotional response. But it is also having a story at the same time, and one without dialogue but it's clear it's very clear at any given moment what the characters are feeling i think that's especially interesting because they try to be i mean as i don't, I don't want to say dramaturgically correct when you have a caveman riding a tyrannosaurus rex but <laughs> <laughs> as dramaturgically <laughs> yeah as dramaturgically correct for their individual species, it seems, as far as we know. Like, we get close-ups of uh, Fang, the Tyrannosaurus, of just her eye. And, like, her eye glancing at one thing and going back to another thing. And, like, she's a Tyrannosaurus. She can't smile or have facial expressions like we imagine people do. Um, but right. it's like having an emotional connection with your pet dog. You know your dog has emotions. You see your dog have them. Does a dog express them like a human? No. But you see mm. that with the character of Fang, even though you just get like close-ups of her eye looking at things. Well, could you go, let's step back just for a second. I know we've talked a lot, but let's let's step back to um, what is the story of Primal just in a general sense, and who are the who are the characters at the center of this story you just say say a sentence or two yes um the names are never spoken on screen but in the credits and uh their credit is fang and spear and that i think is the name of the first episode as well uh yes. fang being the tyrannosaurus and spear being miss fang miss fang there Sorry. you go miss fang <laughs> there you go miss fang Go, I'm sorry. Continue. I've just totally discredited anything I said earlier. <laughs> this we Samuel both have Beckett, today. Blah blah blah. Miss Fang. Miss Fang. Uh, wow. Um, so you have I? Spear and Fang. Yeah. So Spear and Fang. Spear being the caveman. Um, and it's just a story about these two characters, and I. Each episode, or maybe even like each half of an episode, has a plot that stands on its own. Um, the entire miniseries, I think that there's not a unifying plot like you get like from other Getty stuff, like Samurai Jack. There's no evil demon lord in the future to defeat to get back to the past. Got to get back, Samurai Jack. Um, it's the story of the miniseries is about. Well, I don't know what it's about. 
I think it's open to interpretation. My interpretation is that it's about Spears' relationship with family and what that means. Um, and essentially, the five episodes build upon his relationship with Fang and their friendship. And does the idea of family transcend love as we know it? And does it transcend even species without being romantic? I'm not trying to get crazy here. So for me, it's a story of those two together. Have you seen all the episodes, Chris? I have not seen all of them. I have seen um, two of them. Uh, I've seen the first two. I didn't want to watch the second one because it was called River of Snakes. <laughs> and I, I just, I hate snakes. <laughs> so there's that. Um, <laughs> I, it struck me a little bit. Of, yeah, I, I've seen. I, the question was, did I have I seen all of them? I've seen two of them. Um, so I I do like that there is a story trying to be trying to be told um, in a different way. And it's something that it it reminds me of two separate things, the the show. It reminds me of one um, the Clone Wars animated series from Gendy, mostly because stylistically um, and cinematographically <laughs> it they are very very similar um and and also they're told without dialogue mm. as well so the i mean there's dialogue in clone wars the, a little bit sparingly not, sparingly sparing dialogue um and then it also reminds me of the herculoids which is a 1960s Hanna-Barbera cartoon, um, which has dinosaurs and people, and if I remember it correctly, very, very little bits of dialogue. Oh, this is a show with the giant weird amoeba friends? Yeah. Oh, the, I've never known what this was called. I, I had to look it up just now. I couldn't remember what it was called, but Hanna-Barbera Dinosaur Cartoon. Usually you end up getting things like Flintstones. Uh, <laughs> um, Hanna-Barbera has had a long and storied history with dinosaurs. But that was the first thing that I thought of because in some ways that style of it, it feels like a 1960s, 1970s style. I think that's because of Gendy's graphic style being very si simple, being very thick line. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it comes more from that than, you know, anything thematically or stylistically beyond that. Well, I was cheering hardest, I think, in episode four when it reaches like its most just modern HD animated retelling of like the cover of a heavy metal album. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is an aesthetic. Give me my 
your prog rock like crazy monster thing like tell me more about this um so i, I get where you're coming from in terms of feeling like it's from another time and it's not a bad thing it builds upon like what that's trying to do and does that in interesting ways and it also the the thing that i like most about it is that each episode is 22 minutes but they feel at the same time shorter and longer because of the way the storytelling is told they usually find one basic idea for each episode to linger on that way they can take care of that one idea and spend as much time as they need to with it. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the first one, this is going to be spoilers for the first 10 minutes of the episode. You see um, Spear, the, the caveman hunting and fishing and being hunted the first moment where you get to understand, oh, this is a dangerous place. Um, he's fishing. You get to start with being from his perspective, looking down, and you're just waiting for something to grab the fish. You see a spear, and then you realize, okay, that's that's who this is about. And then you get a little bit of quiet, and then all of a sudden, a giant crocodile thing jumps out and tries to eat him. Mm -hmm. And that's, but you got to spend a long amounts of quiet to allow for that surprise. So you're learning about the character and you're learning about the world in about 30 seconds. Um, and the storytelling is very stylized and simplistic in a good way. You see him on his way home uh, and you see him look and you see um, smoke billowing from a cave and it cuts back to a close-up of him and he's able to, you see him smile. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, that's his family. He's coming home to bring food to his family. There's his family's there. You don't know who his family is, but you know that's who his family, that's where his family lives and you know how he feels about them. And it was just three shots. Walking, fire, cut back to him, smile. I guess it was two shots. Sorry, two shots. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how much story you can tell without like explicitly saying it. And I think that even if the show were not hyper-realistically violent at points and appropriate for kids, uh, they would get what was happening. Oh, yes. There's no question that that a, a child would be able to tell what's going on. And I don't know... For me personally, as somebody who um, has issues with gore, mostly because of like weird feelings of empathy <laughs> and like getting physical pains, seeing people get hurt. Like, 
and this is like somebody gets a shot in a movie like oh gosh not like somebody gets shot gets <laughs> a shot they get like an allergy shot in a film or inoculated by something that gives me trouble but um i know it's so stylistically over the top like there's not that much blood in a fish there just isn't <laughs> not at all there's so no much blood way. comes out of the fish and i don't think fish blood is that red either <laughs> no no it's like for that much blood to exist there would have to be literally no organs in that fish <laughs> it would just have to be a balloon of blood going down a river. Anyway, so again, I know it's stylized and hyper-realistic, and it's just accentuating the the danger and um, the violence of this world. And there's no real way to, to exemplify that other than the blood and gore and being surprised in ways that a spear can enter a body of a creature. Yeah. I got to say like for, I think uh, talking about this, seeing how much violence is in this, you do feel like there's more danger for the character in this animated project. I think many cartoons are like, Oh, there's no danger. It's fine. They're cartoons. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. there's danger, but I think you feel it more in primal. (laughs) Because they establish early on that it is a dangerous world, how much blood there is, you know, that if they're gonna if they're gonna hurt the main character, they're not gonna be afraid to make it as violent as possible. Right. And not just hurt physically, but hurt emotionally. Like the the scene where, you know, spoilers, his his family is killed by young Tyrannosaurus. It, it's it's remarkable. It's in in both sense of the word. I mean, it is really artfully done, but it's also horrifying to watch. Thankfully, it's done in silhouette. Yeah. Which I mean, if you're gonna eat three or four year old children, it's good to not have it be done in um, <laughs> photorealistic ways. <laughs> Yeah, it happens so fast, and I think Primal does such a good job knowing what shortcuts it can take, um, because we don't meet the family before they're eaten in silhouette, Uh, but we don't have to, because that smile we see on Spear's face tells us everything we need to know to feel bad about when that happens. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was shocked by how quickly it happened. Like there's no, they don't linger on it because I think (laughs) there is excessive and there's gratuitous. And I think that it is, it's a necessary moment, but it wasn't a gratuitous moment. And they didn't take, um, they didn't take pleasure in animating that. It was just, there was one moment that was just really hurt and it was, one you could only do in animation because and it, and only do in specifically hand drawn animation hmm. because it wouldn't work in in regular CG 3 3D CG um, so the dinosaur runs left across the screen chomps on the mom and the first child turns around 
and there's the other child there, runs after the other child, flips that one child up. And as that one child is flipping, in shadow, mind you, you see the outlines of the child's eyes and pupils. It's hard to describe, but you see a shadow basically with eyes. So you get to see the eyes of the child in huge, surprised eyes that you would not be able to see in a shadow. It's stylized. It's fake. Like mm-hmm. it's. Um, I'll, I'll try to post a, a link in the show notes to something <laughs> to show it <laughs> so you can understand what I'm saying. But it's something that it's, it's shocking because it allows the shadow to have an emotion and also look at the father and have a connection. So you get to see that happening, but it's so stylized. It wouldn't have worked in anything other than 2d animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Gendy, I would say probably wouldn't have worked in many other animators styles, but it works in Gendy style because he takes that moment to linger. I, uh, I'm having trouble articulating what I want to say, but I think a lot of Gendy stuff is tableau to tableau to tableau to tableau and like everything in the middle, it moves fast. And so you have mother and first child being eaten. And the next tableau he wants you to see is the shocked other child flipping in the air. And so it's the fast movement between those tableaus. And it's just such a start and stop lurching experience of living through a Gendy Tartakovsky animated moment um, that's really effective because you don't know what to expect. It keeps you off balance. Yeah, I was, I was shocked that we got there so soon, and how quickly the family was dispatched. Because it's about, for me, in that that episode's about recovery, and resiliency, and moving on, because we do spend a, a good, what feels like a good long time on a suicide attempt, mm-hmm. not long after that. You know, Spears standing on a cliff in silence. And that's, you, he's right there at the cliff. You don't have to see him. You don't need a close up. You don't need excessively sad music to understand what's going on. I think if I may be misremembering, but I just remember wind sounds. I don't remember any music, but the color and the staging tells you he wants to die. Mm-hmm. He wants to kill himself. And because to your point, they focus on just one thing at a time. Like they give you that moment to show that he is experiencing grief for this. They don't just move on with the animated mini series. Right. They show you that emotional journey of like, He's not just going to move on to the next thing. He has to have that grief and decide to live with it. And he does in just one moment of kneeling. He just kneels. He just changes from standing to kneeling. Mm -hmm. And that's simple, stylistic storytelling that can happen without dialogue. Because what words could have gone in there Hmm. in any of this and any of the, as he's going, what is he going to say while he's fishing? (laughs) Can't wait to get home. (laughs) 
like, what, what are you going to put in there? And he's like, oh, no, my family. Like, anything. <laughs> my family just got eaten. No! I would have seen a Star like, Wars movie. Back in time with, like, the Dexter's Lab producing team, <laughs> which Kendi also worked on doing this with that exact basically take. For, like, a <laughs> 90s afternoon cartoon show. <laughs> my family. They're so great. I hope they never die. <laughs> no! <laughs> now I want to die. <laughs> but I won't. Living isn't worth it. My, I'm high up. <laughs> I don't want to fall. I mean, going back to talking about theater... Um, because we're talking about doing the South dialogue in theater. Oftentimes you get a script as a director of a show and everything's already written. So when you're telling the story as a director, it's not like you get new words. You have the words there on the page and your job as a director is basically to be the cinematographer of the theater play. Uh, and at any given moment, if, someone stopped listening to the words of the play just by watching the play happen on stage. They should vaguely know what's happening by just watching how you've blocked and staged the action to be happening on the set at any time. And so I think primal is a lot of like pulling from that directing, like just watch the story without being told any of the story. Mm -hmm. I think it was in high school that I had the realization that my love of animation and my love of theater had a very close tie mm -hmm. in terms of, I was like, these things are linked in a way that most people can't see. And I think film is different, you know, film because it is photorealistic can't give you what theater and animation can do, which is stylize things and hyper-realize things. Like theater is stylized by its own nature. And it, you could try to fool people that they're actually in a place and do something naturalistic, but the more you stylize it with color and environment and... Um, the hint of something, I think the better that theater does. You don't have to give the whole thing. You can hint and play with lights a little bit more and color. And that's the same thing that you get in Primal, which is playing with color and playing with placement of these characters and light. And there, I could just imagine the a play version of something like primal i mean it, it you'd have to do it in a different way but in in a lot of things you just have uh well what am i gonna say so recently we went to go see jurassic world live tour with my son <laughs> Yeah, I'm pulling this in, too. That's the thing I've learned existed today. Oh, you didn't know that existed? I did not know that. It is an arena show. It's a whole new story. 
Um, my seven-year-old is now obsessed with all things Jurassic Park and Jurassic World because of having seen that show. But the, the dinosaurs are puppets. Um, some of them, the smaller dinosaurs, like the raptors, you see the actor's legs in the bottom of the puppets. So you're not being fooled. Like they're in black pants. You see the actor's legs. The larger ones, like the full-size Tyrannosaurus Rex that comes out, um, it's on a cart. Like you see the cart that's driving it around. But it's, a, it's about that experience and the visual and where things are and the, the color of things and the way things are adapted. So when they light a couple of flamethrowers and try to block off the Tyrannosaurus Rex, which, man, those were hot. You could feel them in the audience. <laughs> um, there, there is a visceral response, even though you know that the thing that you're looking at is not a real representation of a real thing. You know that it's a stylized fake thing. The way that it's set up is totally emotional. And if they would have had zero, um, zero dialogue, you would have understood who was a good guy, who was a bad guy, what their relationship was, what they were trying to do, what was happening. One, because it's an arena show, so you have, you're like super, well, we weren't, but you could be super far back and could only see them interacting. You wouldn't be able to see close detail, which is one thing that animation has, especially in Primal, has to its advantage, which is it can linger on detail. So it could give you a facial expression to tell you everything about a relationship. Um, I'm thinking of like the, in the second episode, there's a moment where Fang keeps killing what, um, <laughs> what Beast Spear is trying to catch. Yep. I love that. And, and just this turn and look that Spear has, like, why do you keep doing this? It's everything about the relationship is him angry at an animal for doing what the animal's gonna do. Like, I'm, like I can't, you can't control that. It's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's gonna hunt and eat things. Yeah. And, and that's so. the funniest this miniseries ever gets. Oh, good. I'm glad that I, <laughs> have no more humor to look forward to. It's not like it's all drama and there's not like there's not other funny moments, but that half of that episode itself is just like the, that's everything mid nineties. Gendy was taught. <laughs> <laughs> it's just wonderful. I mean, you get so many emotions over the course of this. I was saying that there's uh, late in the miniseries, there's a half of an episode where it's basically just, Spear and Fang find an oasis and they enjoy their time at this pond. And I could just watch that 11 minutes of animation on loop forever and be happy. Because <laughs> it's a relationship. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, I think a lot of times, and this is especially 
I know this is an adult swim show, but I think it's especially um, the line of thinking is that kids need dialogue to understand things that are going on. And they just, they don't. They need clear relationships, but they don't need dialogue to do that. And I think dialogue can is sometimes the fearful producer's way of adding clarity to something mm-hmm. that doesn't need it. I think adding dialogue is a fearful choice. And I also think that depending on the audience, I think that space and emptiness is also um, truncated for fear of um, losing people. But there's a there's a there's something that I believe in, which is active quiet, um, and where you feel the activeness of the moment, you feel the anticipation. Nowhere does it feel like. Spear in the opening moments when he's waiting to stab a fish. <laughs> I'm I'm a stab a fish. Um, there's no <laughs> anyway. There's at no point where you don't feel every muscle tensed and waiting. It doesn't feel like it's not active. And I think that sometimes. In, in theater and other places, we don't feel that anticipation for what's coming next. There's that stillness, which is the preparation. And I think animators get it a lot more, which is you have to anticipate and then act. There's mm-hmm. that, the whole squash and stretch. Even if you're not doing squash and stretch, there's an emotional and um, squash and stretch that happens in movement and in action yeah i mean i i know that there's many different versions of squash and stretch and i wish that people who made stories for film or animation or stage cooperated more because i know squash and stretch has been around for a long time and i know that in like the mid 20th century eugenio barba did all this about movement and like these opposite movements before you do something it's basically squash and stretch for theater i'm like oh you'd never watched right. a looney tunes cartoon eugenio barba <laughs> i i like your points you're valid and very smart but i mean other people did this work first you got to cite your paper for your dissertation right it's like we've made this discovery and it's different because we're humans <laughs> and then the animators are like, we've made this discovery because we've actually looked at humans. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And <laughs> no one has like, ever thought about this before. <laughs> I am the first. Yeah, and I, I've I've gotten into so many fights <laughs> with theater people. It's like, no, you have to anticipate it. Like I try to bring it when I'm directing, especially what I'm about to be directing soon. I, would, I don't want to go into it, but um, it is about, no, it's not just 
the action, it's the, the reaction first. It's the reacting to what else is being said. And that's what Primal's doing so much. It's an, the anticipation, the reaction to the action. And it's always heading back and keeping an eye on where your characters are and how they're reacting to what's happening and where they are. Mm -hmm. It's just a constant, yes, here's something pretty, but now we're going back to the face of one of the characters just to reorient ourselves to the emotion and story of the moment. Reaction shots. They're important. What? I know. (laughs) I know. I always feel like I learned so much watching like really well done animation. It's like things that you know, but you're like, oh, yeah, that is important. I shouldn't forget about stuff like that. Hmm. And I think I think people forget th- about dynamics. I mean, that's all what squash and stretch is too, is, is talking about dynamics and the story dynamics that are told in the high points and the low points, the quiet and the loud and the contrast. That's how you can tell a story when you're not using words. Mm-hmm. And Primal does it very well. And if I could get over blood and snakes, <laughs> I, I, I can see if I can make it through the rest of the episodes. Uh, I think you'll have some issues, but... Uh, <laughs> hashtag no I mean, spoilers. It's, it's just rough, man. That A spear through the back of the head of a dinosaur that's just that was a lot the chopping off the head of the snake and using the body before going off a waterfall like then then he falls off the waterfall and he smacks his head on a rock and it's just like man this is oh and and there was a crunch sound like (laughs) oh gosh it's just audio squash and stretch yeah audio Audio is another thing. Audio, like audio music and color, sound music and color tend to start to be elevated when you don't have dialogue because you're also framing emotion in those those three key concepts as well. Yeah. If you think that the people who worked on Primal don't know what they're doing, just try to imagine the exact same episode you've already seen, but using the... Mid '90s nine-color Cartoon Network color palette, uh, with none of the squash and stretch. Just a character walks from point A to point B. Everything in a mid shot, like knees up of the characters, <laughs> and um, I don't know, some kind of audio that's just like the sounds of a forest nonstop. Just try to imagine that episode. And think about all the things you're missing as you rewatch an episode of Primal. And you'll start to see all the details of the anticipation, the squash and stretch, the right audio, the color treatment, the length of shot and how far away we are and what that story is telling. All the reaction shots. Ugh. Flintstones ain't got nothing on this, baby. That's very true. They yabba dabba don't. Mm. Yeah, I felt I tried to stop myself from saying it too. 
So, Chris, did you have a favorite thing? (laughs) (laughs) I think my favorite thing is something that was good and bad. So, in his, in the first few minutes of the episode, first episode, Spear the caveman loses his wife and two kids. (laughs) And so he's vengefully looking for the tyrannosaurs that killed his family. And he comes across a tyrannosaur and starts chasing it around until he finds it back at its nest with two kids. And we realize, oh, it's a female. It's a mother and her two kids. It's the wife and two kids that you lost. And he's going to have this new family, this replacement family, and he's going to care for this family in a new way. I was like, oh, great. I didn't know that's where this was going. That's interesting. (laughs) Another Tyrannosaur enters and eats the two kids almost immediately, destroying that that other family, the replacement family is now gone. And now you have this father and mother who've both had families robbed from them. And all they have are together in this strange alliance of him being able to ride her and kill the larger dinosaur. It's just that, that fake out moment of, look, see, it's a new family. Oh, no, it's gone. They're, the kids are eaten again. Mm-hmm. Kids are eating. <laughs> Spoilers. I don't. For plot. Yeah. That's fine. It's the what premise. Was, what, what was your favorite thing? You know, it's hard to pick a favorite thing. There are so many great moments. And I think this miniseries inspires me so much as a creator because it does so many things well. But mm. I'm just going to go back to like my primal, like cheering, like, yeah, moments, which. I think when this series is at its most dramaturgically absurd is my favorite because it earns that stuff. When you have a caveman riding a tyrannosaur, brandishing a spear in battle, like, yes, I love that because the rest of the story and emotion it tells is so real and so well done and filled with reaction shots and quiet storytelling and tableau storytelling that when it gets to like those absurd moments that are out of a sci-fi album, my heart sings. Well, usually when that moment, when they're together, it's it's about that relationship. It's about them as a partnership. Yeah. And so, yes, it's ridiculous in its imagery. <laughs> but at the same time, dramaturgically, they are a partnership. And yeah. it makes sense of them being one unit together going against the world. It's Absurd, but earned. Absurd. Absurd. Earnsurd? Earnsurd. Yeah. No. no. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Shall we talk homework time? Let's. For your homework, please watch... On Netflix, the film that's been waiting to come out, a long-awaited gift, the film Klaus. It is 
a very early Christmas present from Netflix and us. We'll, we'll lump ourselves in there, too. So yeah, watch Klaus on Netflix. We're responsible. We brought this movie to you. <laughs> As always, thank you to our engineer, Nigel Catino, and to Jacob Reed for our theme music. Find us on the web. You can find our show notes at writersgetanimated.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at WG Animated. Let us know what you think about Primal, what you think about Samuel Beckett or Martin Scorsese or writing without words or things without dialogue. Or don't. Stay silent. That's fine. Mm. You could do that too. My least favorite thing are the crisp puns in this episode. Good night, everybody. (laughs) 